um, not self is the usual translation. And uh, there is a very interesting essay by Andy Olensky, who some of you may know of. He's a um, Buddhist scholar who was a resident scholar at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies for many years. And uh, he pointed out that there's no word for process in Pali. If there were a word for process, then perhaps we would translate anatta as process rather than not self. I find that very interesting. So it's it's pointing to, uh, because those words not self, they, they often trip us up. So we feel like we are somebody, you know. I know who I am. It can be like that. And and from a very young age, from when we're little babies, we're, we're given a name and we're told who we are and, you know, maybe we're, where we belong and um, maybe even what's expected of us in our life. And so we, we take on this identity. And just because of the way we think, really, it becomes a, a, a thing. So what we are becomes a something. And so, you know, to varying degrees, uh, we may be very invested in who we are and where we come from and um, being able to define ourselves and that, that for it to have a, a sort of a solidity and a certainty for some that feels comfortable and safe. Others feel more comfortable and safe with fluidity, fluidity and change. Um, so, but you know, whichever way we're going, often that there's still a sense of me and mine that's operating quite strongly, I think, for most people. And uh, it can be a little baffling, this teaching on not-self. Why, why did the Buddha teach this? And it is, um, you know, many, of, many of the teachings that the Buddha points to are found in other, other religions and other practices. So impermanence, for example, it's not like the Buddha discovered impermanence. People knew about that before. And, um, and dukkha, you know, certainly we know that there's dukkha. It's, it's uh, not new. And the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, they're not universal to the Buddha's teaching. They're, they're practiced in, in many spiritual traditions. But this teaching on anatta is, is a key aspect of the Buddha's teaching, which is different. I mean, actually, later on, it has been incorporated in, in other traditions, actually. But in his time, that was uh, a new and radical shift to the practice, and uh, in the in the you know, in the Vedic tradition, there would be um, self with a small s and self with a big s, or atta with a small a and atta with a big a. You could say so. The the big atta would be like the the god. God Atta and the little Atta would be me and my little my little world and my little life. 
And so the Buddha was taking it a step further and saying, don't stop there. It's, there's, there's no um, small self and there's no big self. Let it all go. Don't hold on to any of it. It's, it's a radical shift. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we kind of need, we need to, um, we can't necessarily go straight there. You know, we need to, to take steps and to, to explore and to investigate um, until we find for ourselves what is, what is true and what is not true. So this isn't a doctrine to be believed that we all go around saying, I'm not a self, or that we don't use the word I. Some people do that, you know, just stop using the word I because there's no self. The Buddha used the word I. He referred to himself in the first person and would refer to past lives and so on. So he, was, he wasn't denying um, the, the relative experience of being somebody. But what he was pointing to was that there's nothing there that you can really pin down. And as long as we're still holding on to something, a soul, uh, a personality, uh, the body, you know, as long as we're still holding on to any of this as me and mine, we're still caught in the endless cycle of becoming, birth, aging, and death. And he was. Uh, trying to point us to a freedom that will that liberates us from that cycle. And there are many ways of approaching it. Um, so one, one image is of, um, it speaks about name and form. So this is a, there's a form here, and we call it a bell. And it, it works like a bell. So that, that works. It's a, it's a, we call it a bell and it does bell-like things. So we can just decide, yeah, that is a bell. That's what it is. Um, and then if you look at it differently, then you see that well, it's, there's metal that's come from the earth and uh, been smelted and shaped in this space. And uh, there's a striker, and then bringing the two together, there's vibration and sound, you know, so you can just kind of break it up. And, uh, or you can, you know, so if you, if you start to look more carefully, you can say, well, where's the actual, where's the bell? Is it, does it become a bell when it's struck? Is that when the bell is a bell, or is it when it's, and the metal has been made into that shape. Is that what it's a bell? So it is a bell, and yet it is um, it is a form that we have named bell, and so it works like that. And it's similar with these bodies. So the, the Buddha speaks about name and form being like two sheaves of wheat. If you think about it in the old days when people would cut their you know, before baling and all that, where people would have their sides and they'd go out and they'd cut the, the um, wheat in the field 
and tie it up in bundles. And then they, and then you would begin, so then you'd lean two sheaves of wheat on together, one resting on the other. And they would stay up because they would hold each other up. And with those two, you could then lay two more on top of them and then more on top of them and more on them until you get a huge haystack, huge stack of wheat. It could be enormous and you can climb up onto it. And it's, it's a real strong thing. But at the center, there are just these two sheaves leaning against each other. Nothing solid there. So uh, name and form is, is like, like that. There's name, which will fall over if it doesn't have a form. And there's form, which kind of falls over if it doesn't have a name. But you have those two together and there's something there on which to build, it appears. So, you know, here we are. These bodies, these minds, these feelings, these moods, memories, and all of that going on. So it's like, no, I'm me. You know, I know, I know where I was born and my family and, you know, all of that. The process of life that's happened, the various, the various things that have happened in my life. And so that's, that's one truth, that's one relative truth. And uh, it's, I find it kind of interesting to start with the body. So the body feels like a very, it's kind of a tangible thing. You know, we can see each other. We have bodies. We're not uh, ethereal. We're not devas. And, you know, we have physical bodies. And we're here. And even if we're a little bit uh, tendency to disembody, the body is still here. It's here. And it needs to be taken care of. It needs to be fed and bathed and clothed and exercised. And, and uh, needs medicine sometimes. It needs kindness and attention. So we have bodies. That's that's the that's the reality of it. But then, if you if you start to look at a body more closely, it it starts to get interesting. So, um, you know, we've been looking at the elements. So the body is made up of the four great elements. And about 70% of the body is water. It's around that. So that's a lot. There's a lot of this body is just water. And, uh, and then when you look more closely again, like really closely, on an atomic level, then 99.999999, 27 nines, 99.27 nines is space here. It's kind of amazing. So when you get, when you get down to looking in, you know, what's the, the, like the space inside an atom and the spaces around the atoms, and then the, the, you know, the spaces around molecules, because it's all vibrating, everything's vibrating and, and moving around, so there's space there. So when you look on that level, we're almost entirely space, this body. Kind of amazing. I love that. <laughs> and yet here we are. You know, it feels kind of solid. And on a certain level, it is solid. And it is alive. And, it, and this, this body is alive and solid and, and needs, uh, needs to be cared for. But then when you look in this different, from this different lens, there's nothing you could really call a body. And, uh, you know, also we think of, of um, ourselves as, as being rather separate. 
my body and I sense Tutor's bodies over there. You know, we sit on our separate seats, and, and um, more and more, it's being discovered that we're not, uh, dis, you know, we're not discrete entities in the, in the way that we think we are. So, um, a mother who has a woman who is pregnant with a child, you know, there's uh, there's this. Um, flow of nutrients um, going into going from the mother's body to the child's body, the baby that's growing in there, and the waste products coming from the baby and, and being processed by the mother's body. So there's this constant flow going on between the baby and the mother. And um, what, pe- what they're, they're finding now is that in uh, a mother who has already given birth and who may know maybe even long, long years ago, they find that there are cells in the mother's body of the of that baby. So there'll be so um, it can be in the brain, in the heart, in the in the flesh, that there, that there's been an exchange of cells and those those cells are sort of still there. And then if there are you know if, if she has several babies there can be an exchange of cells between, so like one, maybe the first baby leaves some cells behind and they end up in the second baby or the third baby. So we're all kind of literally kind of part of each other. On on that level, we're not discrete entities. And... uh, you know, and then there's just as we've been speaking about through the retreat, this constant play of the elements. So as I've been sitting here, when I sat down, I felt really hot. Now I felt a little bit cold. That's why I felt a bit cold. Put my shawl on, and then I start to feel really hot. And take it off, and then getting cold again, and put it on. And so there's a, this. So there's you know, heat is is uh, is going out into the room, and then it's and then I'm starting to feel cold, and then I, you know keep the heat in and then it gets hot and then I and the heat goes back out into the room again. It's, this is just going on all the time for all of us. And uh, so this there's this invitation to explore what we think of as fixed and, and real and me and mine. To explore it. How much is it me? What degree is it mine? And then, and also the the um, the bits that we want to identify with, and the bits that we don't. You know, there's, uh, there's some stuff that we don't really want to call me and mine, but it's part of the body. So, so just to get curious about that and interested in that. And the purpose of that is not to. Um, not to discard the body or to um, be aloof from the body, but to understand this body as process, as process that, that came from nature, is part of nature, is f- functioning with the intelligence of nature right now and will return to nature because it's never left, actually, never left. So to, um, to understand that, and when we really understand that, then there's a freedom in that. We don't. Uh, we don't have. To, when the more we identify with this body as me and mine, the more we struggle because it's doing its thing. It's not behaving the way we would 
want it to behave often. And uh, the body, the Buddha points to these five aggregates: the body, uh, feeling, tone, or sensation, perception, mental formations or thoughts, and uh, the sense consciousness or the experience of the senses. And then he goes through all five. You know, the body is not self. Feeling or feeling tone is not self. Perception is not self. Uh, mental formations are not self. Sense consciousness is not self. All conditions are transient. There is no self in the created or the uncreated. All conditions are transient. I love that line. So beautiful. I remember the first time I heard that, I felt like I wanted to dance with joy. All conditions are transient. This is the truth, you know. And yet we get stuck in, in trying to make things solid or feeling that we're solid and then we're stuck. And, and, uh, and it can be just a, a feeling. It is, it's kind of amazing. And I've, I've certainly experienced it myself. There can be a, a difficult emotional feeling that comes up and is very strong. And, and it feels like this is me and this is... This is awful, and it's and it's going to be like this forever. And I've just got to get out of this, you know. And then, actually, what's going on is a feeling. Nothing more than that. A feeling that's arising for a while is there for a while, and then passes. Or it could be like a, a thought or a mood of the mind. People people make uh, people. Um, can uh, we've got to find a wording? People can do make big decisions on a, a transient feeling. So we had um, I, not that I know the background, but there was a um, a shooting recently, uh, like a, a some complicated gathering that happened in Sacramento, not far from where we live, and. And um, uh, there was a group of people there. There was some story there, and guns came out, and people started shooting each other, and people died. So there would have been thoughts, feelings, views operating that created this really tragic situation and that can happen you know we we somebody upsets us and we want to hurt them or or we feel um inadequate or um not enough or that we've done something really wrong and then we want to hurt ourselves and it's it's just a feeling it's just a feeling and it changes it's just a thought and it changes. It's just a perception and it changes. So we can make big decisions based on transient passing experiences. And it's really important to learn how to know the transience of all things, like to be with that arising of something difficult, feel it, maybe even hear the thoughts around it. 
and then stay with it, stay with it and, and watch it change. It will change, everything changes. It passes away and then it's gone. So our perceptions are, are um, influenced by our conditioning and uh, you know these I think I mentioned before how these in the perceptions and the mind and in the view that we end up holding on to all condition each other. So we have a perception of how things should be or how or how somebody else is. Sometimes uh, we don't really give, we can't really see broadly enough to understand that somebody else is operating quite differently to how we are. So we assume that their 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 um, behavior is what we would do if we were in that situation. So we have this perception: well, if it was me, I would be motivated by this. So that must be what they're doing. So there's this perception, and then there's how that lands in our heart. It's like, oh, I don't think they should be doing that. That's not right. And then we have a view about them. Oh, they're, they're a terrible person. You know? They're doing this thing. They're always doing that. It's just So we create this whole, this, think of it as a vipalasa vortex. We create this vipalasa vortex. It's like we're so sure that there's, because it, if it was me, it would be like that. So it's good. that must be why they're doing it. And then, they're, and, then, and we create this whole scenario, which is just a vipalasa vortex. It's not, there's no substance to it. And then we start, dumping on that person and then they start not liking us and we create this whole thing out of nothing. So the Buddha saw that suffering that we create for ourselves and was pointing to a way out that we don't have to endlessly do that. And uh, our thoughts, you know, fortunately uh, thoughts so like the way we think is also very much conditioned, conditioned by language, conditioned by family, uh, conditioned by our education to a large degree. And we, and I think a few people in the, in the groups have said about the judge, the inner judge, so I certainly, I mentioned already that you know, when I first started to meditate, I realized that that judge was just going on all the time, didn't stop. And previously I'd managed to distract myself enough to not to have to face it, you know, listen to some music and go and do something. And, uh, and then when I actually start to meditate, oh my goodness, constant judge, 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 going on all the time. And... Uh, and I recognized that this was a disaster, you know, and I had to do something about it. And so I made a real <laughs> effort to change the way I was thinking. And it, te- it, took, it took a lot of work because I was so used to doing that. And then it's like, no, you have to, you have to find something that's good, you know. And it, it was hard. So I could find lots and lots of things that were wrong, and then it's like oh, something that's right, and uh, you know, something good that I've done. Okay, well, let me think about it, and, and then I could maybe find one or two things, and I could find maybe fifteen things that were wrong, and one or two things that were okay, you know, and and then it's like, well, that seems a bit funny, you know, that it's so unbalanced. So there would be just more and more effort going into 
uh, lengthening the list of the good stuff, you know. And, and sometimes I would literally just do something to put it on the list, you know. <laughs> but the good thing about that is when you're doing it, it's still a good thing. So it works. And then gradually that the thoughts that were just so critical um, and destructive got less. And the thoughts that were appreciative and encouraging got got more and then and also maybe listen to most of us have an inner dialogue you know how we talk to ourselves just to recognize how is that how do you talk to yourself you know are you uh are you berating you know are you are you sharp critical and are you telling yourself you're hopeless you know do you use harsh language or and if you do start to change it so I, I certainly uh, grew up in a, my family environment wasn't a it wasn't an environment where there was a lot of uh, expressions of love of of warmth and kindness and kindness yes actually there was there was kindness but we didn't uh, it was you know we're British and everything we didn't uh, sort of say I love you or anything I don't think we ever said that when I was growing up we just didn't say those kind of things. So, um, and we didn't use particularly kind of sweet, endearing language to each other. Uh, we didn't do that. So I had to learn how to do that. So now, and I, I noticed now it's just very natural. It's very natural to, to speak to myself in a, in a kindly way with terms of endearment. Because it's like, yeah, why not, you know? But we, we're, we're good friends, me, myself and I over here. <laughs> Become good friends. So that's that is part of the 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 undoing and uh, of of the of the knot of self. Of so it's and and I I want to speak a little bit about that the knot. So you know not self and then there's not K N O T also. So the self is like a knot. It become it is like a knot or like many knots and tangles. And uh, you know, it can be that we we there's a, there's just a, a, a tangled mess here, you know, and, and we don't even know where to start. Um, or it can be a very entangled mess with somebody else's entangled mess, or several people's, and then we're just like, oh, God, I just don't know where to start. And uh, so then we have to just look carefully and see whether we can find a thread, something. That we can we can trace. There's like okay, there's a thread of. Uh, it might be a thread of fear, or it might be a thread of, uh, I want, or a thread of, um, this is right. And this is the only way. You know, th- these are some of the threads of self. There are many threads, potential threads, and then you find a thread and you start to just tease that thread out a little bit. If you can pull it out a little bit, and uh, as you do that, it starts to you start to see it more clearly, and it's like, oh, maybe it's not as real as I thought it was. Maybe my view isn't quite as true as I thought it was. Maybe that fear is something that was useful once, but isn't really useful anymore. So we can start to tease apart the the threads of this knot of self. And, you know, we all have quite different ones. For some people, 
I always like to think that there are these really beautiful, elaborate knots that that can be made. And some people have these really beautiful, elaborate knots, and they're like it's kind of beautiful and inspiring, but it's still it's still a knot. And others have got a sort of really very tight knot, and then it feels like it's really hard to even get started in there because it's so tight. And one way of helping to loosen a knot is to wear a very tight knot is to put it in water. So if you put it in water, it starts to you can start to soften the knot and ease it up, and you can start to loosen it in the water. So for me, water and compassion. Compassion, I always think of as like water element. So that can be, you know, we're we're very we're very, we're a very tight knot because things have been really hard, and we're just defending ourselves from the world and. And then compassion can be that kind of warm water that helps to soften that knot a bit, ease it a bit, so we can start to undo some of the, the, that tangle. And then there are hitch knots, knots that we've tied onto something else. And, uh, and they're very strong. They're really strong knots. But if we slide that something else out, so we've tied ourselves to a, well, well, this is here, so we've tied ourselves to a bell striker <laughs> tightly, and it's, and it's really tight, and, it, and it's very solid. But then if we just loosen that a little bit and slide the bell striker out, then there is no knot. The knot falls apart. It's only a knot when it's held, holding onto something else. So it can be like that. Um, yeah, we each we each have our own particular tangle going on, and you know it's for it's for each of us to to explore that and see you know, where are the places that are that are holding, where are the places that are afraid, where are the places that are that are grandiose, where are the places that are hurting. And, and and we just gradually tend to and um, take care of this tangle and gradually untangle it. And it's not about making oneself a perfect person. So the the personality is it can't be perfect. It's never perfect. It, by its nature, it's not perfect. That's, that's the nature of personalities. So we're not trying to make ourselves a perfect personality, but there is a certain healing and un- unraveling that can happen in a in a wholesome way that simply gives us more freedom. And then the, it can be a bit of a scary perception. Also, I know when I first heard about not self, I felt scared. Like, oh, hang on a minute, if there's no self, what what's going on, you know? Who's steering the ship? And uh anything could happen. If there's no self, if I don't if I don't stay in control here, then anything could happen. So it seems like that. But uh if you look out if you look at nature Look how nature operates. I mean, I don't think the trees are sort of going, me, me. You know, I'm a, I'm an oak. I'm a bay laurel. You know, 
I'm a madrone. You know, they're not they're not doing that. They're just being. They're growing in their natural way, and they know how to do it. They know how to bring up, you know, nutrients from the earth. They know how to breathe. They know how to um, get their leaves all waxy during these long dry summers to keep the keep the moisture in. They don't need to think about it. They don't have to write a plan or anything. It's just it's natural. So th- it's it's also true. Not that I'm there yet, so I don't can't really tell you with complete authority. But it's also true with what we call self, me and mine. You know, when there's no more holding to a sense of self, it's not that we become idiots or we can't function. You know, the Buddha was completely free of any sense of self, completely understood the the true nature of things, could, could understood the the process, and uh, you know, brilliant being whose whose teaching is still alive 2,600 years ago, it's astounding. So we don't have to be afraid that if we, if we um, allow the, the personality and the, the, or the, the sense of, of who I am and the sense of needing to be in control all the time, that if we, if we ease that and let that go and through investigation, we don't have to be afraid that we'll be a mess or that we'll be uh, not able to function because those those qualities of the awakened mind are, are brilliant they're brilliant and clear and sharp and profound and deep and simple uncomplicated so in a way it's like we we uh the the sense of you know the self is kind of a story it's, 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 it's the thoughts that we keep stringing together about who we are and what we are. And in the, in, the, in the practice, we're gradually changing the patterns of grasping and pushing away and um, mainly those two in various millions of different forms. Uh, we're gradually letting go of that into presence, into responsiveness. And when we first start to practice, it's like, um, you know, we start off as, this is me, and I, I'm a bit of a mess, and I really need to do some practice, at least that's where I started. And, and then you're kind of doing stuff to try to get more well and get more happy and get more um, more able to be in your own skin. And that was kind of my motivation in the early years. You know, recognizing I live, I live with this one 24-7, so it needs to be kind of livable. And um, so it starts there. And we begin by, you know, with, with meditation and maybe precepts and at least working towards precepts and um it's it's it begins as a sort of a, as a personal project 
But as we deepen the practice, what you might find, and you may have tasted this on the retreat already, what you might find is that as we bring in the these more awakened qualities like the like metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the four Brahma Viharas, for example, or thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of, of non harm, or um, attuning our attention to change. You know, all of these things, or, or allowing the mind to really settle deeply in, into the present where the, the truth kind of reveals itself, the more we do that, it's not that we're becoming a, a more enlightened person, but that all of the things that are in the way of the clarity are falling away, are getting less, less dense, less strong. So as we practice, it's like we get more and more empty in a way, more and more empty of wanting and not wanting, more and more empty of controlling and pushing away, and there, and there's a responsiveness, that and a trust, that allows us to still fully function, as as fully as each of us can. And it's motivated by by nature, you could say, by dhamma, by the truth of the way things are, rather than by me and my agenda and what I'm gonna what I need to get and what I want to get rid of and so the very um practice of of letting go of the sense of self reveals the the brightness and the clarity and the beauty that's here but it is obscured by all of the wanting and not wanting. As I think it's been mentioned already as, as we progress on the path, it's not that we get more and more. You know, it's like we, talk, we use these words attainments. You know, do they have any do you have any attainments? You know? Um, so what does that mean? You know, it's like the attainments is that you've let something go. You've attained letting go. <laughs> so you're actually kind of it's, it's, it, yeah, you get it. it's less, 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 less junk, less clutter, less, less uh, stuckness, less fear, less greed, less confusion. And when there's less of all of those, then there's it leaves a, a brightness and a clarity and a spontaneity and a playfulness and a joy, creativity. All of those qualities can come through. They're not weighed down by me and mine and should and shouldn't and can and can't and and never going to be enough. You know, it's not weighed down by all of that anymore. So we're free to live fully. So seeing what is without a self as a self. This is the, the mistake, mistaken identity. 
I'd like to really invite you to explore that, you know, ongoing actually in your practice, to explore where the sense of self arises and how it feels, um, how it changes, how one can be a a really super impressive self one minute and be a, a complete hopeless self another minute and, you know, it changes. And um, how it feels, and and also when when there's when there's dukkha, because all of these these vipalasa they all kind of interweave also. So when there's dukkha, there's a, there's clinging, but there's also identification. Usually, you'll find some identification somewhere that's holding on to a sense of me and mine, and that is the source of dukkha. And letting go of that is the freedom from dukkha. And there's a very simple teaching that I was given by, um, it's actually by the same nun who gave the movement meditation instruction to me. Uh, her name was Mechi Pratumwan. I think she's still around and teaching in Thailand. And um, we, uh, we used to live next door to each other in our little rooms in the monastery when I was a novice long time ago and uh, we would she we would hang out together she we had we sort of had a nice connection but we didn't have a shared language apart from a few dumber words i had not many and she had many uh, so she spoke thai and i spoke english and a little bit of welsh and uh, which neither of which were helpful <laughs> and uh, so but anyway we would spend time together and and Sometimes there'd be someone, a friend who would interpret, and sometimes she wasn't around. And this one time she wasn't around, and we were together, and we were talking or being together, and and then she just put out her hand, and uh, she put her hand into a fist, and then she said "atta," which means self, and then she let like her hand open up, and she said "anatta," not self. It's such a profound teaching. Atta, anatta, grasping, not grasping. Same hand, same hand, grasping, not grasping. And and you can see, like with the hand, if the hand is grasped like that, if it's clenched in a fist, there's not a lot you can do with it. You can defend yourself. You can bang things. You know, you can you can make yourself feel. Safe by holding really tight and making your knuckles go white, but that's not—it's not very useful. But you open it up like that, you can do so many things. There's so much that uh, it's, it's so much more uh, possibilities when uh, when we're not grasping. So uh, she didn't list that, but when when she when she gave that teaching to me, which was very was a very powerful transmission, actually, I also saw like, oh yeah, there's the five aggregates: uh, body, feeling, um, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, sense consciousness. There they all are. You know the five aggregates that the Buddha talks about, and then you grasp them, me and mine, or you let them go. But they're still here, and they're much more. Uh, they have much more possibility when we're not holding on. I wanted to offer that tonight. And um, I don't know if I've been... Yeah, I think I'll read you this poem as an ending. 
I really just really love the last two lines, but I'll read the whole poem. I mean, it's a lovely poem, but the two lines are what I want to convey to you. And this is again from Maddie Weingast's book, The First Free Women. And it's a, a reimagining or a, a reinterpretation or reimagining of the poem of Upachala, who was one of the uh, awakened nuns of the Buddha's time. And uh, her name means the second sister. So there were three sisters. And this one is the second sister. And it's, uh, it's Maddie's interpretation, so this isn't, a, this isn't a, a translation as such. I left home soon after my sister. She found a cave, I a community. Typical middle sister, always the social one. The voice inside my head always used to ask, why do I have to be the middle sister? Never first, never last. When is it my turn to feel special? These are our stories, first, second, third. I thought the path would make me feel special, but instead it sang such deep, rich tones that the voice inside my head just couldn't help but sing along. If you're going to tell yourself a story, why not tell yourself a story of freedom? If you're going to tell yourself a story, why not tell yourself a story of freedom? This is my invitation to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.